orange, uh, insert an introduction to Daniel so I don't spend too much time. I'm going to spend some time with uh, what Daniel's all about, but this gives you a lot of information. encourage you to put this in your Bibles, and uh, you'll be able to find Daniel a lot easier with a bright orange insert. And then you also have a bookmark with an outline of Daniel and how we're going to go through it. You'll notice we're going through Daniel in chronological order, not directly by chapters. And so some of those chapters are going to be, uh, look like they're out of place, but we're doing it chronologically. And we'll finish up at Easter. So we are starting Daniel, and we have uh, two banners, new banners about the book of Daniel. Thanks to Louise uh, for those. And uh, those will make more sense to you as we go through the book as they explain the various uh, visions and events in the book of Daniel. And so I'm delighted. Uh, Last summer we had a uh, uh, book club, and uh, that came out of the book club. We decided we need to use more of our creativity in the church. And so uh, our first stab was uh, we have artists-like people that can do banners, and uh, so here they are. So that's a great thing. And so please say... Thank you to Louise, and uh, we start First and Second Thessalonians in May. So, just a heads up. <laughs> She's like, oh no. Um, turn to the book of Daniel. You'll want to open your Bibles approximately in the middle and go a little bit to your right. And most of the time, most Bibles, you open them, you'll either be in the Psalms or Isaiah and you just want to go to your right until you see Daniel. If you get lost in all the minor prophets with uh, some of the really long names, and you've gone too far, and back up a little bit. If you get to Matthew, you've really gone too far. So the, uh, this is a long chapter. These are long uh, narrative sections of Scripture, and so we're going to read the whole thing. You have to listen carefully. Uh, Daniel comes to us in big chunks. And so I'm not going to break it up like I normally do. We're not going to spend a couple years in Daniel. We're only going to spend a few months. But these uh, come to us in uh, large stories. And so you need to listen to Daniel. We're going to go to the whole chapter 1. Daniel 1. Listen to the Word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Not what you do, Bonnie, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, pretty much. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. And of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. 
Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's a lot of scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we have come to your word. We ask that you would enable us to come with interest and attentiveness. These are hard passages for us to understand. And so we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to hear the scripture, so much so that it profoundly affects our lives. Do this in each of us this morning, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. There is a uh, fascinating genre of literature that goes by the name alternative histories. The novels imagine what life would be like if history turned out differently than it actually did. Some of the leading writers of this genre are Newt Gingrich, yes, that Newt Gingrich, and uh, whose book Gettysburg explores what would have happened if Robert E. Lee won that pivotal, pivotal battle of the Civil War. So the linchpin of the Civil War. So he writes this novel, what would it have been like if Lee had won. 
which pr pretty much means he wouldn't have fought at Gettysburg. But the, uh, another writer, Harry Turtledove, is probably the uh, dean of the alternative history writers. He has written a series of books uh, carrying this alternative history out, starting with the Southern victory in the Civil War and carries it through American history and, and our wars. And in this one, he gets to World War I. This is called The American Front. This is actually the second volume of his books on World War I. And uh, he gets to World War I with the United States and the Confederate States taking different sides. He tries to imagine what that would be like. Probably the most famous alternative history book came from the spy thriller writer Len Dayton. He wrote a book called SSGB, Nazi Occupied Britain. And he tries to answer the question in the book, what if Adolf Hitler hadn't started a second front against Russia and focused all of his attention on invading Britain in 1940? Very possibly, he would have made a successful assault. And the result would be a very different place for Britain and for all of Europe today. In all likelihood, people in those countries would have grown up in a rep repressive police state, living in constant fear of the authorities. And he imagines that many British citizens would have been forci forcibly uh, moved to other parts of Europe relocated, and that the best of the youth of Britain would be taken back to Germany for training and service to this new empire. Of course, that never happened in Britain. But because Hitler did open a second front against Russia and drew them into the war, it did happen in much of Eastern Europe. And for years, when people rose up in those countries, they were brutally repressed, and any potential leaders were either executed or exiled to some distant part of the then Soviet Union. And in many parts of the world today, in Latin America, Africa, Asia, the Middle East in particular, these harsh realities still exist. Can you imagine what it must be like to be exiled in a foreign city, alone and scared a long way from familiar surroundings. This week in the weekly events email that goes out to the church, I listed some challenging questions for you. And I said the book of Daniel is going to answer these questions. The first one was, how do you cope in the midst of brokenness and alienation that is life here on earth? And certainly we're going to see Daniel and his friends coping with brokenness and alienation. What truths can you cling to when the jagged edges of existence are twisting against you? When life gets that rough, what truths do you cling to? Daniel's going to reveal some of those. What do you need to know to live a life of faith in an alien world, a world that is frequently a place of sickness and pain, broken relationships and bitter tears? And Daniel's going to deal with living in an alien place. And even if you think those are hypothetical questions for us today, I don't think they will remain so 
in our lifetime. They weren't hypothetical questions for most of 20th century Eastern Europe, and they're not hypothetical questions for millions around the world today. They certainly weren't hypothetical questions for a young man named Daniel some 2,600 years ago. But before we get too far into the text, we need to know a little of the exile, because that's the background for the book of Daniel. The context of this book is the Babylonian exile. The people of God have, by the very beginning of this book, begun to reap the harvest of bitterness that Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets had told them they would experience if they turned their backs on God, if they didn't follow his ways. And the exile is one of two defining moments in the history of biblical Israel with the exodus being the first one. The exodus, of course, was their return from exile in Egypt. Now they're going to be exiled in Babylon, and in modern-day Israel we talk about three exiles with the diaspora from 70 A.D. to the 1950s being considered the third exile. This is a defining moment in the history of Israel. And it remains so to this day. There's so much. It's hard to pick up a newspaper and not see a news story with a byline of Israel. And yet much of the rationale comes out of thousands of years of history and three exiles. And every soldier they have to this day goes to Masada before they're inducted into the military. And their last act before they're inducted is to stand on that mountain where hundreds of Jews committed suicide rather than being taken captive by the Romans. And they say, never again, never again, never again. So this is one of the defining moments that we're going to learn about here in the history of Israel. And they carry that over and apply that even today. We're going to see how it applies today for us. If you remember some of your Old Testament uh, history, or if you've been attending Rich's uh, Sunday school class on the Old Testament, you will know that there was one constant problem confronting the people of Israel. And that problem was idolatry. Over and over again, Israel turned away from God and turned to idols. And they had a long series of evil kings with a few good kings sprinkled in there, but most of them were bad, and they led them astray. And they also had a series of prophets who over and over again called them back to worship the one true God. The 8th century prophets, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Micah, who preached in the 700s B.C., famous for constantly warning the people of God, but they're largely ignored. And then the prophets of the exile, primarily Jeremiah and Ezekiel, preached a message of judgment for disobedience and hope for obedience. And it took almost 30 years for the people to be taken into exile, and after their exile, their return was spread out over another 90 years. 
They were taken into exile in three waves, and they returned in three waves. And Ezra and Nehemiah tell us the story of their return. However, many never returned at all. After they were defeated in 722 B.C., we have no record of what happened to the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. They are out of the history books. They never show up in the Bible again. They didn't return. We assume they were assimilated into all the cultures that captured them. And that was a common thing of the day. When you captured a company, uh, a country, you took their people and spread them out amongst your kingdom and took a lot of your uh, other people and put them into that land and tried to get everybody mixed up and intermarried and so they would lose their identity. Because of this, we have a group known as the Samaritans who were Jews and Assyrians that were mixed together and created this new uh, group of people called the Samaritans. The southern kingdom of Judah was different, but not dramatically so. But they did learn, after they returned from exile in 538 B.C., and they took the name Israel, they did learn, and they never fell prey to idolatry again. They had learned their lesson. In fact, over time, they developed a group of religious leaders to oversee the spiritual health of the people and to keep the people from idolatry so God would never send them into exile again. And they were powerful and effective in this. We know them today as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were created for a good purpose. Their mission was to keep the people from idolatry so they wouldn't be sent into exile again. And of course, several hundred years later, we see where that wound up with an extreme form of legalism that Jesus had to denounce. But prior to that, prior to the exile, we have unfathomable, repeated sin that would bring the exile as a means of God's judgment against sin. And that's where this story starts. You see, by the year 605 B.C., six centuries before Christ, the deportation to Babylon has begun. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a Chaldean by blood, has an expansionist plan to take over uh, as much of the ancient Near Eastern world as he could. Jerusalem is one of his first targets. And this exile, though it may have looked to them, and it may even look to some of us like God's out of control, is in fact, according to God's own prophets, his punishment against Israel's sin and rebellion. And that's a key to understanding the book of Daniel and his whole view of the sovereignty of God. The exile into Babylon functionally meant that Israel was never an independent nation again. And it's true that they came back after a period of time, after 70 years, and there was a series of monarchs in the land of Judah 
uh, known as Hasmoneans. We enter into what's known as the intertestamental period, what the Jews would call the Maccabean period. But Israel was never an independent nation again. She was always a tributary to some larger nation, either Greece or Rome. And so the captivity into which the children of Israel begin to be taken in 605 B.C., is the functional end of the nation of Israel. And that's where our story starts. The book of Daniel is both familiar and unfamiliar to most Christians. Because of that, it poses some unique challenges for us. The stories of Daniel in the lion's den and, the, and of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace are staples of Bible story books and Sunday school classes. And they're still fairly well-known, even in an age of biblical illiteracy. And so we've all been taught, if you grew up in a Protestant church in America, that Daniel is about how to live faithfully in the midst of an unbelieving culture. And that's true. Daniel does teach that. But I have to say, if I see one more sermon with the title, Dare to be a Daniel, I'm going to puke. Because that's not the main point of the book of Daniel. We see that somewhat in the first six chapters, but the last six chapters are a series of apocalyptic visions that are meant to encourage believers living in hostile times. Told the elders that going through Daniel, I want to do First and Second Thessalonians, which has a lot of apocalyptic uh, imagery in it. And come September, we're going to hit Revelation. One of the elders said, this is the year of the apocalypse. <laughs> so you want to keep that on your prayer list. Apparently, Wall Street heard him. No. But much of the book of Revelation is based on the book of Daniel. In fact, one uh, commentator says that 70% of Revelation is found in Daniel and Ezekiel. So you can't understand Revelation if you don't get Daniel. And so that's why we're going through this book first before we get to Revelation next September. And we're going to be reminded that there is one greater than Daniel, the one who perfectly lived the exilic life of service and separation for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the high point of the book of Daniel comes in chapter 7 with a heavenly vision of the exalted Son of Man who took flesh among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the book of Daniel is not about us, and it's not about Daniel, but it's about a sovereign God and the coming of the kingdom. And so with that in mind, let's begin our study of the book of Daniel. And first we start by seeing... That God is faithful in judgment. Faithful in judgment. Starting at verse 1. I'm just going to read the first two verses here. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's where we get the date. That's a marker. So we know this is 605 B.C third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we're told what happens. 
And then verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And now we know why it happens. It's not just that Babylon was greater than Judah or that Nebuchadnezzar was more powerful than Jehoiakim. The Lord gave Jehoiakim. And to live faithfully in exile, we first need to know God's faithfulness. Now, this isn't as comforting a truth as you might think, since the first aspect of God's faithfulness we see in this book is God's faithfulness in judgment. As verse 2 makes clear, the exile came upon them because the Lord handed King Jehoiakim over to the power of Nebuchadnezzar. God gave his people into the hand of their enemies. The Lord had warned Israel of the consequences of sin all the way back near the end of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In Leviticus 26, God made a covenant with them that included blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And if they persisted in their disobedience, God said, Leviticus 26, and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your city shall be a waste. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. And this is exactly Israel's fate as it unfolds because of their persistent disobedience and rebellion against God over many generations. God handed them over to their enemies and they went into exile. It's also the specific fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in 2 Kings 20 and Isaiah 39. Earlier, King Hezekiah had received envoys and gifts from the king of Babylon. And in response, Hezekiah showed him all his treasures, took him into the treasure house. And for this, he is condemned by the prophet Isaiah. Because Hezekiah hadn't just received a gift from the king of Babylon, but rather in the ancient Near East, this is a request from Babylon to become an ally with them against Assyria. And when Hezekiah opens his treasure house, he's showing Babylon that he has the resources to be a useful ally against Assyria. Despite one chapter earlier in 2 Kings 19, the Lord's miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem. Hezekiah is now embarking on a political solution through an alliance with Babylon. Politics has replaced trust in the Lord. And Isaiah says, because you trusted in Babylon instead of God, Babylon is going to come get all the treasures. And not only that, he says, 2 Kings 20, verse 18, and some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. When you start thinking about Daniel and his friends being taken to serve the king of Babylon. We kind of skip over the part where they made him eunuchs. 
You can look that up, what that means. But I wonder how many men would remain faithful to God if that was your situation. It is this specific word of judgment that's fulfilled in the opening lines of Daniel. It says, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So we have another prophecy fulfilled. Babylon's going to get the treasure, and he's going to take the best of your young men. And they're going to become eunuchs and made to serve the king of Babylon. So now we have two prophecies that's already been fulfilled in the first three verses of Daniel. And yet the recognition that their fate came from the hand of God as a faithful act of judgment is in itself an encouragement to the exiles because Daniel realizes that the future is not controlled by Babylon or its gods, but by the Lord, the God of heaven. The one who had sent them into exile had also promised to be with them in exile and ultimately to restore them from exile. And he even tells them how long, 70 years. And that's the approximate time of the rest of Daniel's life from Daniel 1 through 12. It's going to cover that time period. And this is an important thing for them to realize. It's an important thing for us to realize. During its hardest moments, when life seems most out of control, when our fate seems to be in the hands of hostile people or the outworking of some kind of impersonal force we don't understand, and yet the reality is that every experience we have in this world, from apparent coincidence at one end to the determined acts of the wicked at the other, lies under the control of our sovereign God. For every believer, every circumstance is the Lord's means of furthering his goals of sanctifying us, of making us holy, of making us more like his son Jesus. And so it was that Daniel and friends found themselves in exile in Babylon. But while there, they were not forgotten by God, and they did not forget that they were God's children. And so they, they were able to remain faithful in remembering. Verses 4 through 7, faithful in remembering. It picks up there, it says, and they brought them there to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. The wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. This is important. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Four men are probably teenagers at this time. We don't know for sure how old they were. All the best evidence we can find puts them somewhere between 13 and 17. Which means they were born when the temple was reopened and the word of God was rediscovered in Jerusalem. So they are the first generation that gets sort of the rediscovery of the word of God from the temple. And then... They hit their teen years, 
They're taken to Babylon. First, they're, they're exposed to this. What we read here sounds just sort of like, you know, they went there and they ate and they got new names. But it's really an intense uh, reprogramming, an intense program of re-education. First thing that happens is their names are changed. This is significant. The name Daniel means Elohim is my judge. Elohim is one of the Hebrew names for God. The name Belshazzar means may the lady of Bel protect his life. Bel is one of the gods of Babylon. So you see they change his name from the God of Israel to the God of Babylon. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is the personal name of the God of the Bible. Shadrach means Marduk is exalted. Marduk is also called Aku. He was a sun god or a moon god. It's a little unclear. Mishael means who is what Elohim is. While Meshach means who is what Marduk is or who is like Aku. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. Nebendigo means the servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. So their Hebrew names that mention God have now been changed to Babylonian names that mention the Babylonian gods. That's significant. They said, you know, it wasn't like, you know, we came from Europe and they anglicized our name uh, so it would be pronounceable in English. They actually changed it to represent a different set of gods. Second, they're instructed in the literature and language of the Babylonians so that its myths and legends would take the place of the scriptures as their source of wisdom and worldview. That's significant. Where does worldview initially start to change? What's the least spiritual and uh, most secular and most anti-spiritual part of the university. The English department. We tend to think it's the science. That's not true. Science guys actually believe in truth. Right. <laughs> Got an amen over here. That's right. You know what a Presbyterian amen is? When somebody goes, hmm. <laughs> the, uh, So they start with the literature and the language. That's how you change people's thinking. It worked 2,600 years ago. It's no different today. If you want to change people's thinking, you start with the literature and the language. Postmodernism didn't come out of the science department. It came out of the English department even before it came out of the philosophy department. Third, they're supplied with food and wine from the king's table. This is the best food and the best wine. So they'll become to a life of dependence on their new master, the king. And so at the end of their three-year training period, as they enter the service of Nebuchadnezzar, their new king, their previous identities would be obliterated. The fundamental goal of the whole program is to erase all memory of Israel and of Israel's God from the lips and minds of these young men and to instill in them a sense of total dependence on Nebuchadnezzar for all the good things in life. Isn't that how Satan still operates today? He may uh, violently persecute believers in some parts of the world, yet often the majority of the people are far more easily assimilated if they're well-fed and provided for. 
Ultimately, he works more effectively by deceiving us into forgetting God and thinking that our blessings come from somewhere else. It's the whole point of the screw tape letters. Go back and read C.S. Lewis' screw tape letters. It's not that you're going to be violently dragged away, it's you're going to be subtly seduced away. So you think you don't need God. He wants us to forget the truths expressed in these Hebrew names, that God is our judge and he's the one who shows us grace. He wants us to forget the uniqueness of our God and the help that only he can provide. And if he can instill in us a dependence on the material comforts that make up our way of life, then he can more effectively draw us away from the Lord. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, he wants us to forget, to forget, to forget. And if he can get us to forget God, then we no longer pose a threat to him and he can ignore us. But that doesn't always happen and it doesn't happen here because they resisted the pressure to forget God. First, while they don't refuse to answer to their Babylonian names, they also continue to answer to their Hebrew names. They kept their real names as a reminder of who they really were. Second, they didn't forget the traditions, the laws, the worship, the celebration of their homeland. That's true for all exiles. That's true for all immigrants. They cling to the ways of their mother country. And that's why St. Patrick's Day is celebrated with way more enthusiasm in Boston than it ever has been in Dublin. Exiles relish opportunities to celebrate their true identities. If you've ever lived overseas, the 4th of July is actually a bigger holiday for Americans in Europe than it is here in the United States. For us, it's a day off and a picnic. Pretty much. But if you go to a 4th of July celebration overseas, it's like, we're Americans. <laughs> it's a much bigger deal. So what does that mean for us? As citizens of heaven, we need to take every opportunity to gather with our fellow exiles to remind ourselves of our true home in heaven, of our true identity in Christ, and our true priorities in worship. And as we sing praises, we're singing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land. Psalm 137, verse 4, you read it in your responsive reading this morning. That's a psalm of exile. By the waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept. We remember thee, we remember thee, we remember thee, Zion. As the word is proclaimed in worship, heavenly wisdom is learned. As we celebrate the sacraments, the sign of heavenly citizenship is placed on us and our children in baptism. And a sign of the great cost of our citizenship and the benefits it brings is given to us in the Lord's Supper. God has promised never to forget us in our exile here on earth. And we have been called by him never to forget such a great salvation. And that's what's happening here. Because Daniel was faithful in remembering and he was faithful in dependence. Faithful in dependence, verses 8 through 16. Verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. You know, the way that 
these young men resisted assimilation into the Babylonian system was by resolving not to take the king's food and wine. The issue is not that the food wasn't kosher or that it had first been offered to idols. That would have been the case with the vegetables as well. If the Babylonian food was intrinsically evil, then Daniel would have had to abstain from it permanently, and we know that's not the case from later on in the book. So what is the issue here? I think the key to understanding why they chose such a simple lifestyle is simply to be dependent on the Creator God for their food and not on King Nebuchadnezzar. Dependence on Nebuchadnezzar would have been defiling because it would have repeated the in their lives, the sin of King Hezekiah, who had brought this judgment upon God's people in the first place. Once again, Daniel and his friends are seeking to maintain their faithfulness to God by working through the Babylonian system, not against it. They ask permission from the chief official for this personalized diet. But the focus of this chapter is not on the faithfulness of these four young men to their God. The focus is on the faithfulness of God to them. It is God who causes them to find favor and compassion in the eyes of their captors. And again, this comes as an explicit answer to prayer from hundreds of years earlier. At the dedication of the temple, King Solomon prayed that when the people end up in exile, as they surely would because of their sinfulness, then the Lord would cause their captors to be compassionate. 1 Kings chapter 8. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. This compassion on Daniel and his friends is given to them by God in answer to the prayer of King Solomon from several hundred years earlier. And that continues. So we need to learn that God is not only faithful in judgment, but exceedingly faithful in mercy. Faithful in mercy, verses 17 to the end. Here we see it's God who's faithful to Daniel. It starts off, verse 17, and as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God's favor on them enabled them to answer all of Nebuchadnezzar's questions. So that, verse 20, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom. God placed them in a unique position where they could be a blessing to their captors and build up the society in which they found themselves while at the same time enabling them to remain true to him in the midst of extraordinary pressure. We read these stories. We marvel at the faithfulness of Daniel when in reality the story is about the faithfulness of God. Challenging people just to dare to be a Daniel becomes just another meaningless plea to moralism. Go forth, do more, be better, try harder, earn your way to heaven. And that's not the gospel. The book of Daniel is about God keeping these young men faithful and that he's surely able to keep us faithful in our trials and difficulties. It's not about how good Daniel is. It's about how good God is. The theme of God's faithfulness emerges again in a brief note at the end of the chapter, verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
The first year of Cyrus is the year in which the decree was issued that enabled the Jews to return home. Second Chronicles 36. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we've gone from Babylonians to Persia, and Daniel makes that transition. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. That happened some 70 years after Daniel was taken into exile and thus were reminded that God's faithfulness proved sufficient for Daniel throughout the exile and indeed throughout Daniel's lifetime. We have no record of Daniel returning. As far as he knows, after the decree is made, Daniel dies. There's one final note, though. You can't afford to miss in this, and I know we're running late, so just bear with me. And that is a reminder that God is faithful in our salvation, in our salvation, because the reality is that when most of us look at our lives, we find we're not much like Daniel at all. We're far more like the nameless masses who were deported with Daniel, who adopted the foreign names, who ate the king's food, and who became like the Babylonians altogether. In many respects, we've been assimilated into the world system in which we live, and our futures are mortgaged to it. And if the message is just, be like Daniel, we might as well stop now. Brian Chappell calls them the killer bees. Be like Moses, be like Abraham, be like David, be like Daniel. Because the more we get to know Daniel, the more we realize we're not Daniel. The reality here is that Daniel is answering the question of Psalm 137, our responsive reading this morning. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We're confronted every day by a society once permeated with Christian thinking that has now become baffling to understand. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Are we going to sing the Lord's song because we do more, because we think we're better, because we try harder? Or do we sing the Lord's song because he has been faithful to give it to us when we least deserved it? The good news of the gospel is not that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. Not at all. The good news of the gospel is that God has come to deliver faithless and compromised saints like us. Our salvation doesn't rest on our ability to remain undefiled by the world, but it rests on the undefiled offering that Jesus has provided for us in himself in our place. Jesus Christ came voluntarily into this world with all of its pains and trials. He endured far greater temptations and sufferings than Daniel did or that we ever will, and yet he remained entirely faithful until the very end without spot or blemish and grants the perfection of his obedience to all those who trust in him by faith. What's more, Jesus has already returned from his time of exile and now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He has prepared our places there 
there, and his presence there is a guarantee that one day we will be there with him as his people. The cross is the means by which God's faithfulness redeems the unfaithful. The resurrection is a guarantee of our inheritance in heaven. Remind yourselves of this gospel. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and exalted. He's not only pioneered the way home, he is the way home. Ask him to put you in places where you can be a blessing to your community. Ask him to give you wisdom and understanding in your homes, in your schools, in your workplace. Be dependent on him and trust in his faithfulness. That's what the book of Daniel is all about. This is a gospel book, and it's about the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. You need to pray.